The scripture this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 30 through 50. Hear the word of the Lord. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were, because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, How can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. This is God's word. Good morning, everybody. Again, my name is Matt Brown, and I am uh, one of the pastors at Resurrection Brooklyn. And right this moment, uh, there are thousands and thousands of people running through the five boroughs of New York City. And, uh, And even past our church in Clinton Hill, they're having a shortened service today. And then they go outside and they have these uh, booths and stands set up and they are serving water and cookies and whatever else to people as they, as they run by. And I find that to be a wonderful uh, picture of the church itself. Because if you've ever been to one of these marathons in New York, you know that the streets are lined with way more people than are actually running the race. So all through Brooklyn, you can run, through, you can run this marathon and then there are thousands of people partying on their stoops and they have, they have music, they have bands, sometimes they rent bands, and they, and, and, and they have all, this, all these activities going on to encourage the runners. And then they know a few of the runners, and so they kind of track where they are, and then they can cheer them when they run by. And I'm reminded of this because every year, the marathon falls on the Sunday after All Saints Day. It's great. Because on All Saints Day, we celebrate this great cloud of witnesses that has gone before us and are cheering us on that we might finish the race. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. 
And that's one of the reasons that I love being here today, because you guys are like our cloud of witnesses. You cheer us on. You have been involved in our work at Resurrection Brooklyn for many, many, many years, and you have been faithful supporters and cheerleaders for us. You've also come and run the race for, for various lengths with us, and, and that's been helpful as well. And so I'm here today to just say thank you. We appreciate all of your support. You are helping us run the race much more effectively. This past year, we have experienced some transitions. I handed off the Park Slope congregation to Chris Hildebrand. He's doing a fantastic job, better than I ever did. And I am still the senior pastor over the network, and I'm kind of uh, shepherding all the various activities that we have as a network, the central activities, and also starting to think about strategy and vision for the, the next few years. And one of the things we're starting to focus on is partnering with other churches in Brooklyn so that we are not just focusing on church planting. We've planted two new churches in the last couple of years. But we're also now trying to come alongside existing churches in Brooklyn that may be struggling and are in need of some renewal and some, some help in the same ways that you guys have helped us. And so some of you who traveled up this summer, you know that we're partnering with a very small uh, Hispanic church in Sunset Park. They're called Zion. And they hosted your, your ministry teams that came up and helped Brian and Sheepshead Bay this summer. And you stayed there and you took showers in their makeshift shower stall and uh, your church should know that you suffered mightily for Jesus. Um, and they should be very grateful, grateful to you. Uh, but that is a, that's an example of, of some of the churches that we are partnering with in Brooklyn. So you can be praying for us, not only as we work to sustain the existing churches that we have, but also to love and faithfully serve our brothers and sisters uh, across the borough who are trying to love, uh, love God's people well. Um, this morning, I am pleased to be able to come and fit back into your Mark series, uh, that passage we just read. I think you've taken, a, what, four or five-week break from Mark? And so, five-week break, and it, during that break, you had Frank James and, uh, and Carolyn come down here, and I'm sad that I missed them. Frank was one of my professors at seminary as well with Rick, and uh, I love that guy. We called him Super Freaky. Super Freaky, Frank James. Um, and just uh, adored him, and it was really great to, to, be, to be in seminary with him, and I'm, I'm glad you got a chance to meet him. So today, uh, as you jump back into uh, Mark's gospel, let me remind you what's been happening. Jesus has been wandering around teaching about the kingdom of God. And he's talking about how this kingdom is going to come and manifest itself, and then he's been doing various uh, miracles to give evidence that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus. And so then today, in that first part of the passage that was read there, you, you heard the disciples fighting about who is going to be the greatest in this kingdom. The disciples are awesome. I like all of them. They're just like me, right? So we want to fight about who is going to be the greatest in God's kingdom. And Jesus says that they don't understand it at all that the economy and the sociology of the kingdom is very different than the sociology of the kingdoms of this world. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. And so we're going to focus on what Jesus means when he talks about greatness and how he contrasts it with what the disciples understand. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump into it a little bit. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word that was read this morning. We thank you because they are words of life to us. They are words of love to us from the one who has sought us out 
and is redeeming us in Jesus Christ. And so it is in his name that we pray that you would impress these words upon our hearts and minds this day, that we might live as your people more faithfully in this world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my oldest daughter, Flannery, uh, is a senior in high school, and our lives are currently consumed uh, with college applications. And I've been, I've been helping her with these applications, and every college wants to know about her leadership skills, right? And they want to know what leadership programs she's been in. They want to know what things at school she's been leading in. They want to know how she's been a leader in our community and all these other things. And so we have to fill out essays and applications and short answers to talk about what a fantastic leader Flannery is, okay? And I was struck with the contrast in this passage this week. Uh, so I did a little search on Amazon, as I like to do, and I searched for books on leadership. And there are 194,419 books that would help me exercise power and influence over other people. Here were some of the titles. How Leaders Succeed, The Four Leadership Secrets You Need, all caps, you need to know. Another one, The Catalyst Leader. That sounds awesome. Eight Essentials for Becoming a Change Maker. And then The Leader's Code. There's always something to crack, right? Mission, Character, Service, and Getting the Job Done. And then here's my favorite. This is awesome. Boundaries for Leaders. Results, Relationships, and Being Ridiculously in Charge. Yeah, that's a book I want to read, because I want to be ridiculously in charge. So after browsing for a little bit, I did another search in light of this passage. I did a search with the word servant in the title. This time I found 21,560 results. But here's the thing. A lot of them snuck in the word leadership, right? Servant leadership. And so you, if, go home and Google this. You'll find this. So, so you have these books on servanthood, but they still, it's all about being a leader, right? And so what does that mean? It means there are 10 times as many books on leadership as there are on servanthood. And there's no surprise there, right? There's no surprise as a pastor. I receive zillions of mailings, emails, physical mailings on how to be a more effective leader and pastor in my church. I get invitations to all sorts of conferences on leadership in the church. You guys just hosted a conference on leadership in the church. I've never once been invited to a conference on servanthood. Ever. Interestingly enough, the Bible isn't as obsessed as we are with being large and ridiculously in charge. True, the Bible is full of very interesting stories about amazing leaders. Moses, Joshua, Deborah, David, Nehemiah, Esther, Peter, Paul. And leadership is one of the spiritual gifts listed in the New Testament. But the Bible places much greater emphasis on serving. And Jesus only uses the word lead 21 times. 
and most of the references are negative. Judas leading the crowds to apprehend Jesus. The blind leading the blind, and so on. In contrast, there are 225 references to serving and servants. Some of them are not positive. They're wicked servants. But most of them are positive. For example, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You see, Jesus was far more concerned about serving well than leading well because this is how we become great in the kingdom of God. It's one of the paradoxes of the Christian faith. So today I want to look at three things. I want to look at the recognition of true greatness. I want to look at the way of true greatness. And then lastly, I want to look at the evidence of greatness. Okay? So first, the recognition of true greatness. And what I want you to see in this passage is that Jesus does not correct his disciples for aspiring to be great. He doesn't correct them for that. The kingdom of God is about honor and glory and greatness. And this is one of the most prominent themes in this chapter. At the beginning of chapter 9, we have the transfiguration story in which Jesus is acknowledged as God's beloved son and is visited by two of the greatest people in all of history, right? Hall of Famers, Elijah and Moses. And the disciples know they are in the presence of greatness, and they're terrified, the scripture says. And then after descending the mountain, great crowds, John Mark tells us, surround Jesus. They chase him down. They want to be with him because they understand what a great teacher he is. And they want Jesus to perform more of these great miracles, and they don't want to miss it. And then the disciples complained because they were sent out by Jesus and there was this demon-possessed kid and they tried to cast the demon out and they couldn't do it, but Jesus comes along and he casts the demon out. That's greatness. And so the disciples are like, Jesus, how could you do this? And we couldn't. He's like, oh yeah, you gotta pray. But Mark chapter 9 is a lot about greatness. How could it not be? And Jesus keeps referring to himself as the Son of Man. And it's easy for us to misunderstand and assume that when Jesus uses this title, he's calling himself like the dude you want to drink a beer with. Like, Son of God, divine. Son of Man, he's your cool neighbor. But that's not what Son of Man means at all. Son of Man was a very explicit reference to an Old Testament passage, and you've probably heard this uh, in previous sermons. After the prophet Daniel was rescued from the lion's den, he has a vision in which these beastly monsters are attacking God's people. And in that vision, God reassures Daniel that everything is going to be all right because the Son of Man is coming. This is the passage. Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion 
which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus is calling himself the Son of Man, he's claiming to be this great king, this Messiah, the anointed one. And so we can understand, right, why the disciples are here debating whether or not they're going to be great. They're fighting over court appointments. Right? They've given up everything to follow Jesus. Jesus is claiming to be this great ancient prophesied king, and so they're assuming that their reward is going to be pretty amazing, right? James and John are fighting over secretary of state. Peter believes he's the perfect vice messiah, and Judas is angling to be the secretary of the treasury, right? And Jesus doesn't discourage them from thinking this way. Because the New Testament is full of language about greatness and honor and reward in the kingdom. A few examples. Matthew 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Luke. But love your enemies and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. John's second epistle, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. So is it any wonder that the disciples are debating their place in the kingdom of God? Of course they are. We must be quick to say that Jesus never tells anyone that salvation is something we can earn through our own works. That is not the story of the New Testament. Salvation is by grace. And people enter the kingdom of God by God's grace. But Jesus says that when we enter that kingdom, when we enter into God's great feast, that some will be rewarded more than others. Some will have more prominent seats in that great wedding feast than others. It will be wonderful and remarkable for any and all of us to be there. But some will maintain positions of higher honor than others. So then we must ask, what is the way of true greatness? How do we actually achieve the greatness, the rewards, that Jesus talks about. This passage tells us. Jesus hints at it in verse 31. And because I'm old and going blind, I have to pull out my glasses to read them to you. In verse 31, Jesus said to the disciples, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They're afraid to ask him. I love this. The disciples like Jesus' reference to the Son of Man. They love this and his glorious kingdom because it sounds like greatness. But Jesus' reference to killing and death, not so much. Because they know like we know. 
People who are killed are the lowly and the weak and the marginalized. They're the ones whose lives are vulnerable. And this is why the disciples do not want to talk about this, why they're afraid to ask. Because what Jesus is describing here does not sound like the world in which they live. The world they understand. Where power and glory come with strength. One of the great things about living in Park Slope, Brooklyn, the neighborhood where my family has lived for 15 years, is that we live next to Prospect Park. Prospect Park for those of you who've been there, is an amazing public space. One of Olmsted and Vaughs, they, they said it was, their, it was their magnum opus. This great public park, 450 acres, and a huge meadow in the middle. And I love living near the park because it's beautiful and you can walk through it. But I also love living, through the park, living near the park because I have a dog. And... At Prospect Park, you can bring your dog before 9 a.m., and all the dogs can run off leash. And there are hundreds of dogs on any given weekday just running around in the park. And on the weekends, thousands of dogs. It's insane. If you ever come, you have to go to Prospect Park before 9 a.m., and you'll be amazed. You'll think, this is crazy. And it is, and it's really fun. But you know how this works. The dogs figure out how to get along. And they get to the park, and all the dogs do dog things, right? They sniff, and they greet one another, and they'll occasionally jump on one another, and they will establish very, very quickly the pecking order in the park. And the, one, and the dogs who control the park are the biggest strongest, fastest, most aggressive dogs. No surprise, right? I bring that up because that's, how the, way, that's the way the world works. That's the way the world that you live in works and that I live in. That when you enter into a social setting, everybody has to determine who's on top and who's on the bottom. The next time you go to a party, Watch how people interact. It's not long before the top, the top dog is determined. There's an immediate sizing up. At some parties, people want to know where you live, what firm you work for, what clubs you belong to, where you went to college, what private school your kids attend, where you go on vacation. Right? What's that? That's sniffing everybody out. At other parties, the top dog is determined by your knowledge of art or music. And if your favorite painter is Thomas Kincaid and your favorite musician is Neil Diamond, you're going to be sitting by yourself all <laughs> night. All night. And we do the same thing with literature and politics and food, and we have all these pecking orders, and we just try to determine who is at the top. Who knows more? Who's smarter? Who's got more money? Who's got more influence? We name drop. We sniff one another out. 
and even pastors, we do this. We do this more than you do. We have our checklists, right? What have we accomplished? How many churches have we planted? How big are our churches? What are our budgets? Have you written a book lately? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's nauseating. And we do it every time we get together, just like you do at your conferences. We separate the strong from the weak, and we always idolize those who are most powerful, most self-sufficient, most useful. But that's not how the kingdom of God works. Jesus, in this passage, takes a small child in his arms, and he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And to understand the power of Jesus' actions here, we must remember that children had very little value in the ancient world. In contrast to our day, in which children are often the center of their parents' universe, which could be an entirely different sermon. Maybe I'll preach that one next time. Children in Jesus' day were disregarded as a nuisance and seen as dispensable until they survived childhood and could contribute to the family economy. And Jesus identifies himself with this small child. If you receive this child, you've received me. And this is what Jesus lives out in his entire earthly ministry. He identifies himself with the weak and the marginalized, with those whose lives are vulnerable, who can't protect themselves. He was born to a poor teenager in a stable. He lived in Nazareth, a backwater despised by everyone. He spent most of his life working as a carpenter. He surrounded himself with sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors. And ultimately, Jesus was crucified between two criminals. He could have done anything different. He could have had it all, right? That was the temptation that Jesus experienced when he went off into the, into the desert. Everything you see belongs to you. Claim it now, says Satan. But Jesus says, no, that's not the way of the kingdom. The way to greatness is to put aside your power, to lay down your authority, to give what you have for others, to give up your riches for the poor that they might become rich. To be crucified, even though you are sinless, for a world full of sinners. That's the way of the kingdom. That's the way of true greatness. That's the sociology of salvation that Jesus is talking about here. It's no wonder the disciples don't get it. And then the question is, do we get it? Do you get it? Do I get it? What's the evidence 
that we understand what Jesus is talking about here. As we've already said, in the kingdoms of this world, greatness is measured by power, money, and notoriety. Great people are recognized with awards while they are alive and monuments after they are dead. New York City's full of them. Rockefeller Center, George Washington Bridge, et cetera, et cetera. And colleges want to know about my daughter's leadership abilities because they want to attract people who are going to make a huge impact in this world and make a great name for these schools. We've produced five presidents and 20 senators and so many judges. What are you going to do for us? But is that the evidence of greatness? Jesus says no. Jesus says it is servants who will be great. So what does that mean? How do we apply this? How do we think about this in our own lives? Well, let's consider what a servant is. Let's consider some of the aspects of servanthood. Very quickly, servants are attentive, right? Real servants pay attention to the needs of others. A good server in a restaurant fills up your water glass before it's even empty, before you had to call and ask, before you had to raise your hand. That's a good server. They're attentive to the needs of others. And I feel foolish telling you this because your congregation is nothing if not attentive. In all the years that you've been helping us in Brooklyn, you've been attentive to our needs. You've anticipated our needs. You've watched what we were trying to do. You've watched what we've been trying to raise up, new young pastors through our residency program. And Rick calls me and says, hey, guess what? Our church really wants to help you guys with your residency program. I'm like, wow, that was amazing. Filled up my water glass before I even knew it was empty. Start thinking about planting churches. Hey, good news. Our church really wants to help you guys start planting some more churches. Wow, that's great. Brian Stedman wants to run some new camps in the summer. Immediately, you guys are there, filling up our water glass. You're attentive. This is what servants do. Servants are also diligent. Real servants are faithful in all they do. They finish their tasks, they fulfill their responsibilities, they keep their promises, and they complete all of their commitments. John Wesley said it well. Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, for as long as you can. That's a servant, day in and day out being attentive to the needs of another and meeting those needs. And again, it seems silly that I'm telling you Stonebridge because this is what you have done. This is what you are doing. And I don't want to praise you too much because I don't want to steal your reward in heaven. I'm just observing, okay? 
But what else does a servant do? The third thing I want to bring up is that servants are inconspicuous. The best servants are almost invisible, are they not? In large homes, there are servants' quarters. They're not up front, they're out back. In hotels, there are service elevators. You're not supposed to ride them with the service staff. Room service cleans your room when you're not there. They're inconspicuous. So when Jesus says that we are to be servants in this world, he says that we are to be doing tasks even when we don't receive recognition. Occasionally you will receive recognition, and that's great, that's okay. That's a wonderful thing. I am pleased whenever we receive recognition in Brooklyn for the work that we are doing. We received some of that recognition this past year. I'll give you an example. A woman in Sheepshead Bay sent a donation to our denomination with a little letter. We don't know this woman. We've never met her. And this is the letter she sent. My neighborhood in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, was severely damaged in 2012 by Hurricane Sandy. Reverend Brian Stebman worked with volunteers to help my neighborhood recover. The words Resurrection Brooklyn were on the side of their van. I met many of your volunteers as they were living in a rental house on my block. They worked very hard and, in my opinion, were more effective in helping and comforting people than the Red Cross and other agencies that were caught up in bureaucracy. The city, New York's Build It Back program, is still slowly, underlined, fixing and raising houses. When Harvey hit, I immediately made a donation to the Red Cross. When Irma hit Florida, I decided to make a donation to you, I, as I have more faith in you than the Red Cross. Thank you for all you do to help people in need during a crisis. That's a great letter. I was glad to receive that. I was glad to receive some acknowledgement for the work that we've done and the work that you have helped us do. But friends, that's not why we do the work. Because as servants, you're never guaranteed to get something like that. Hardly ever. People are always quick to complain. I don't call room service and say, you guys are doing a great job, thanks. <laughs> no, I call when something's wrong. And so what I want you to take away today is that when you are serving, you may be overlooked. You may never get a letter like that. You may never receive the gratitude and expressions of thanks, even from me, that you deserve. And that's okay. It's okay. Because Jesus says that your reward is coming. You won't miss out. It's guaranteed. Jesus walked out of that tomb and he was raised again and he ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father and that Son of Man is coming back to establish his kingdom and when he does, he's going to reward those who serve him faithfully. So I want to encourage you I want to encourage you in the work that you are doing. 
I want to spur you on to even more. And I want you to know that even when you come into that kingdom, there'll be no boasting. There'll be no bragging. There'll be no sniffing around. Because it is God himself, it is the Holy Spirit who is inspiring you to these good works. And it is Jesus who is helping you carry them on to completion. So continue in your good labors. And your reward will be great. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. We ask that you would impress it upon our hearts and minds and help us to be your faithful servants always. In Jesus' name, amen.